Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends, using the authority of Jesus, our master. I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's family brought a most disturbing report to my attention that you are fighting among yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, I'm on, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. I ask you, has the Messiah been chopped up into little pieces so that we can each have a relic of our own? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? I was not involved with any of your baptisms, except for Crispus and Gaius. And, and on getting uh, on this report, I'm sure glad I wasn't. At least no one can go around saying he was baptized in my name. And come to think of it, I also baptized Stephanus's family, but as far as I can recall, that's it. God didn't send me to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction, but for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out, it's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world, in all its fancy wisdom, never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God, in his wisdom, took delight in using what the world considered stupid, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust in him. To, who trust him into the way of salvation. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ, the crucified. Jews treat this like an anti-miracle and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us, who are being personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so tinny, so impotent. Next to, next to the seeming absurdity of God, human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses 
chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, it comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Recently, uh, slash, I guess not so recently, throughout the past year uh, of quarantine, I and uh, I suspect many of you as well have been uh, binging my way through what feels like Netflix's entire back catalog. Um, and more recently in that binge, uh, I have made my way to the Karate Kids sequel series, Cobra Kai. Um, and I know that you have all tuned into this sermon because you want to hear me summarize the plot of a show that debuted on YouTube and serves as a sequel to a 35-year-old movie. But I'm sorry to disappoint you. I am going to keep my summary of this relatively brief. It follows uh, the two these, these two guys whose giant heads you can see, uh, who are the main characters of the Karate Kid, who were karate rivals decades earlier, as they both opened their own karate dojos. And at some level... Uh, they have the same goal, they want the same thing, which is to teach the next generation, these uh, these kids you can see a little bit smaller here, uh, karate, so that they can build friendships and learn confidence and self-defense. Um, but because they have this personal rivalry, these philosophical differences uh, with each other, they increasingly focus on those things rather than uh, their common goal. And as these kids, who are their students, um, increasingly uh, start to identify themselves with uh, their their dojo, um, it leads them as well increasingly into verbal and physical conflicts with each other. Uh, this is a somewhat silly story about competing karate schools, uh, but it taps into a tribalism that seems to be uh, innately built into us as humans. We can see it manifest uh, in a lot of ways in our culture through sports fandom, uh, school spirit, national pride around events like the Olympics, uh, political parties, and in the practice of our faith as well. There's something in us that seems to um, just crave uh, or, or want to be able to define ourselves and identify ourselves by who and what we associate ourselves with. Uh, and to make sure that we all understand what the differences are that distinguish us from them. Paul has really zeroed in uh, on this instinct in our passage today uh, and identified this phenomenon taking place amongst the Corinthian church. They also have uh, a competing teacher's problem, uh, and they're starting to bicker between each other and have these rivalries cropping up, um, not necessarily because of the essence of what they're all being taught, but because of uh, the ways and degrees to which they've aligned themselves with their teachers. Paul tells the Corinthians uh, and tells us through this letter that this is a dangerous practice and he wants to put a stop to it as soon as he can. And he gives uh, basically three reasons why the unity of the believers, the foolish wisdom, uh, as he calls it, of the gospel and the boast that we have in God. Um, he identifies these, these three things as, as, sort of why he wants this this uh, inter-factional fighting to stop. Um, and he uses the these points as well to caution the Corinthians, ultimately against allowing something good to come between them and the perfect goodness of Jesus, um, which I want to dig into a little bit here because it's as much a challenge and a temptation for us now as it was for the Corinthians. 
Um, when we read what uh, Paul describes in the earliest sort of portion of this chapter, uh, or this passage rather, it sounds like Corinth uh, almost has had like a, a church conference roll through town um, because he he's sing singling out some of the big um, leaders of the church world. He writes, it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. These are, uh, you know, powerhouse names for the early church. You have Paul, who uh, is the miraculous convert, you know, his story is well known about uh, his, his conversion on the road to Damascus. He's a noted missionary, even a rock star missionary, you could say, um, and a church planter who's been spreading the faith all over the Roman world. Um, you have Apollos, who was an early convert. We don't know a ton about him just from scripture, but uh, he was notable to uh, other early church members for his uh, oratorical skills, made a name for himself through the eloquence of his, his speaking, um, and kind of cut his teeth and made his reputation debating with Jews uh, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah through scripture. Uh, and he also has a bit of his own missions career building, particularly in Corinth, um, Paul calls him the one who watered the seed that he planted. So he was around during a lot of the big growth of the Corinthian church. And of course, you also have Cephas, better known to us uh, as Peter, you know, the rock himself, the, the man who Jesus said was the rock on whom he built his church, um, the man who bears personal firsthand witness about the faith that these people are committing their lives to, you know, one of the 12 disciples who um, plays a central role in the, in the gospels and, um, the, the story of Jesus's life and ministry. In short, these guys are basically all celebrity pastors known for their persuasive teaching, their moving testimonies, uh, and their achievements in the missions field. And the people who have learned from them are really eager to sort of wave their, their Team Paul or Team Peter or Team Apollos flags um, to the point that it's causing this conflict to come up between them. And we don't get any indication from Paul's letter here exactly what the nature of this conflict is or the point of contention, whether it's a theological debate or uh, some personal conflict or, or some matter of preference between teaching styles, we don't know. Um, and it doesn't really even seem that this beef originates with the teachers themselves because um, like I, I mentioned, Paul will comment on Apollos' work in Corinth. He makes reference also in the letter to having spoken with him recently, no sign of animosity. Uh, and we know that Paul and Peter had occasionally locked horns over some theological points, but never to uh, a point of enmity with each other or uh, in a way that it seems clear is at issue here. I think what's more likely is that these men are just being pulled into a conflict, which is really rooted in the same tribalism that I described earlier, that need to uh, define ourselves by what we're associated with. And in this case, it seems to me to be sort of a naked grab for clout and recognition uh, by members of the Corinthian church. They look at these leaders and they see power, respect, wisdom, and they think that if they connect themselves to these names, other people will also see those same attributes in them or, or attribute those same attributes to them. Uh, and of course, this is um, idolatry for the, the Corinthian church and, and folly and self-gratification. Um, but I think that this is also something that uh, we can recognize easily in others, but miss in ourselves. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that idea in, in a moment. But on some level, it doesn't really even matter what this fight between the Corinthian factions is about. 
what matters in Paul's eyes here is that it's creating a division and that makes it a problem. It's basically the first thing he has to say in this letter. He's written to the Corinthians, um, you know, of people who are near and dear to his heart. Uh, and his letter basically starts out, hi, everybody, hope you're doing good. I thank God for you. Now, let's talk about this uh, this little fight you've got going on. It's kind of the first thing once he gets the niceties out of the way that he wants to talk about. Uh, my mother-in-law is, uh, is in the audience today, Leanne, hello. Um, and she is a, a font of proverbs uh, and advice and wisdom. And whenever she hears a story about an argument or a disagreement um, between uh, couples in, in the family, she will often prompt her children and their spouses, uh, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? This has occasionally been adapted by us younger ones to do you want to be right or do you want to stay married? Um, and I don't know for all of you, for me, sometimes tough call. I like to be right. Uh, I like I like to be right. Brittany Ann can testify, I'm sure. Um, but I think that this is part of the danger that Paul recognizes here. Um, there are, of course, times where an issue is too important to prioritize happiness over what's right. Um, later on in Corinthians, Paul will describe a situation where um, his judgment is, if this behavior can't change, this person can't be a part of this church. It's more important on this matter to be right than it is to be happy. But in this case, separation is precisely what he wants to avoid. Last week, uh, as our call to worship, we read Psalm 133, uh, and it says in its entirety, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Unity with each other uh, among the believers is one of the great blessings that we're privileged to reap in a life following Jesus. Not only that, but it's the right and natural state uh, for believers to be in. Later in this letter, Paul will describe to the Corinthians that the way that the believers make up one body, um, just as here he demands of them, is Christ divided? Uh, and of course, we know that the answer to that question is no. I really liked the way that it's put in the message um, that uh, that was shared with us during the reading. Um, has the Messiah been chopped up in little pieces so we can each have a relic all our own? Um, Paul is sort of creating a picture here that to divide the church is to divide the body. And to divide the body is akin to dismembering Jesus in the interest of each having our own little piece of him that we can sort of winnow away, secret away for ourselves and stake our claim to. When we're united in the body, we're able to partake of everything that Jesus has to offer us as a whole, not not just this one little piece that we might greedily try and grab at. And he's, uh, the, the psalmist tells us that to have that unity is as fresh as, as morning dew on the mountain and, and it's life forevermore. That unity doesn't always come easily, and there may be cases where it feels like we have to choose between being right or being happy. But part of the blessing of unity is that it's a situation where to be happy is to be right. Uh, it may involve releasing pride or releasing a grudge, um, giving forgiveness that you might feel slow or, or hesitant to give, uh, or it might learn to distinguish uh, a conviction from being right. You know, believing something to be true doesn't necessarily mean that you know that something is true that that you are in the right um but when it comes to or when, when you're able to overcome a disagreement uh, and have that unity with your fellow believers uh, you can always be assured that in god's eyes you have done right
Unity uh, in general throughout this passage is clearly something that has Paul agitated in his writing, um, but it's not the only thing he's concerned with, this sort of broad general fact of disunity. He recognizes danger and sin in the specific source of this disunity as well. This um, compulsive sort of factionalism or, or hero worship that the Corinthians are showing for their teachers of choice. Paul knows the foolishness of putting trust and hope uh, in men instead of in God. And he asks the Corinthians, were you baptized in Paul's name? Uh, and, and even goes so, so far as to thank God that he that so few people can say they were baptized him or by him. Um, he explains this, this position for saying of himself, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of his, its effect. Then more generally, he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Paul recognizes that uh, what wisdom he has uh, as, as someone who might be called by the Corinthians, uh, the one who is wise or the teacher of the law or the debater of this age. Um, he knows that any understanding he has is an understanding that to the eyes of the world uh, is foolish and is a wisdom that was granted to him only through God. Um, he, he writes about how Jesus is seen as a stumbling block or as the message put it, an anti-miracle to the Jews, um, you know, is this the, our Messiah, the, our conquering king who is promised, this man who's hanging, bleeding on a cross? Uh, and to the Greeks, uh, he's foolishness. To live, you have to die. To be the greatest, you have to make yourself the least. These are ideas that only make sense um, through the redeeming lens of the gospel and, and through the sure knowledge that because Jesus was crucified, sins are forgiven and those who believe are reconciled to him. Paul wants the Corinthians to see past uh, the words that have been taught to them, to understand that in a way to call what he preaches gospel, good news, is almost a misnomer because what Jesus did is not words. Uh, it, it's, it's a new way and it's not news, it's new life. Uh, it goes beyond the, the, the message itself and onto the actions and, and what was accomplished through what he did and what he said. But he also recognizes that the wisdom of men is a temptation and a sway for the Corinthians, just as it is for us now. Um, today, as then, there are teachers and leaders uh, whose voices speak with a sort of disproportionate volume among believers. Their influence stretches further because we don't need to wait months or years for the next time they roll through town. Uh, we can live stream their sermons every Sunday or, or listen to the backlog uh, whenever we want to. We don't have to wait for their next epistle to arrive to share wisdom. Uh, we can look at their tweets whenever we want. Uh, and they have they have fresh tweets daily. Um, and like Paul and Peter and uh, Apollos, uh, there's nothing wrong with learning from these teachers. I'm sure uh, just even, even mentioning it or having this conversation, many of us have someone who comes to mind as uh, a teacher who has been important in the development of our faith and who we've been blessed to learn from. But like the Corinthians, we can make the mistake of substituting our knowledge and understanding of what these people teach about Jesus for knowledge and understanding of Jesus. Um, through no fault of these teachers, they become like modern priests for us. 
Um, they become these intermediaries without whom we don't have any personal connection to God. We rely on them completely to, to tap into God for us. Um, and this is a problem for uh, several reasons. Um, the first is that these people are ultimately still people. They have a person's wisdom. Uh, Paul asks us, where is the one who is wise? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Uh, the world did not know God through wisdom. If all our understanding of God is filtered through the perspective of someone whose wisdom can be and has been made foolish, then our understanding in itself uh, becomes foolishness. We rely on human understanding. We're only ever going to achieve human understanding. Second, it makes these people into idols for us. Uh, in the digital age where we interact with these big name teachers through the remove of uh, our screens or through their books or, or sermons, we might not have any status or, or recognition to gain by associating our name with theirs. Um, but what about confidence or understanding or belonging? Um, isn't it true that just by invoking the name of a pastor who's well known, you can instantly project a picture into other people's heads about exactly what it is you believe and why you believe it and what you don't believe and would disavow? In this section of the book, Paul describes uh, the word of the cross as foolishness. And in the next chapter, he'll refer, and in several of his letters, uh, he'll refer to the gospel or, or to what Jesus has done as a mystery. Um, Jesus himself, in explaining his parables, spoke of the secret of the kingdom of heaven. That was how he described what he was doing to the disciples. Um, and passages like these uh, speak to me sort of at some kind of artistic level. Uh, Mike, can we go back a slide? Sorry. Um, they, they hint at this sort of uh, beauty and poetry to how God works that at some level uh, eludes understanding. It's like uh, it's like a greased up watermelon that you want to get your hands on and it just it just pops away from your grip. Um, and that that image is appealing to me on some level. And I think it can be not not the watermelon image, the, the more general mystery image. Um, I think it can be easy to appreciate those facets of scripture uh, when we're feeling secure in our faith. But when we feel rudderless, uh, it loses some of its luster to be told about a God and a gospel that defy understanding. Uh, what we want is security and assurance. Uh, and a teacher who preaches with conviction uh, or who has an impressive education or insight into scripture might make us feel like we have that security and have that assurance. But it can be dangerously easy for us to um, make the messenger the rudder instead of the message. Paul is clear that the gospel can seem foolish uh, or mysterious or secretive, but he's also very clear that we can have understanding through Jesus. Look at each of these, these uh, passages that I have up here. He may allude to foolishness or to mystery or to secrets, but he also talks about the understanding that he's been given, the insight he's been given. Jesus says that nothing is secret except to be revealed. All of these things are, are things that we can have knowledge of, through our intimate and personal relationship with God, not through our intimate and personal relationship with the work of a particular teacher. Lastly, uh, there's a tremendous threat to um, the, the faith and well-being of the larger church when we allow our trust in uh, a human teacher to replace our trust in Jesus, and that leader proves unworthy of the trust. Um, Sadly, this is a, a situation, too, where I'm sure I, I don't even need to necessarily name a name. Just bringing this up probably has called to mind uh, someone or, or several someones um, 
who were respected teachers that we learned a lot from uh, who subsequently had hidden sin exposed and their ministries damaged or dissolved. These stories uh, are always tragedies um, for the people who have been hurt or victimized by a leader misusing their position for the harm that uh, is done uh, in God's name or under his, his sort of proverbial flag. Uh, and for the churches and ministries that are fractured as a consequence of them. For someone who has placed their trust in a leader who fails them uh, in this way, the effect is disillusionment, betrayal, and alienation. We should know from our own lives uh, and our own hearts and, and our own testimonies that when someone is held to God's standard of holiness and righteousness, no person is able to meet it. Um, yet all the same, we put our trust in these people, these human leaders. So these are the, the three sort of big dangers that the Corinthians face and that we face when we start putting our hope and understanding in humans. We trust in human wisdom, uh, which God has made foolish. We make idols out of gifts, the, the gift of these teachers who uh, we have a lot to learn from, but who we put in a position that uh, is not what they're asking for and, and is not where they belong. Uh, and we put our trust in that which is untrustworthy, um, human, human uh, failing. And by the way, this is this is not only something that's unique to big time, you know, celebrity pastors, uh, any more than it's unique to karate teachers. Local pastors can fill this role. Maybe Mike fills this role for someone uh, sitting in on this call. A church can fill this role, or, or a ministry, or a, an individual mentor. For me, uh, my time with Power to Change in university filled this role for me to a certain extent. Um, just to be clear, this wasn't because of any wrongdoing on Power to Change's part. Uh, they're, they're a ministry that I think does a lot of good work. I owe a lot to um, in terms of my personal development and spiritual development. Um, I was very proud and happy to work with them after I graduated. I'm very proud and happy to support them now and, and have a lot of friends who continue to be involved and um, who I think are doing great work, great kingdom work um, in God's name. But around the time that I got connected with them, I was experiencing some of that rudderlessness that I described earlier, you know, 18 or 19 years old, not really totally clear on what I believed. So to be around people who were my own age, um, who spoke with conviction and, and understanding about things that I kind of felt shaky on or maybe had never even really thought about, it became easy in a lot of ways to let those people think for me and to let the organization save me instead of the savior. I didn't realize at the time the extent to which I was sort of training myself to say the right things instead of fully understand why they were right, um, to trust in the convictions of people who I respected rather than to personally be convicted myself, uh, or to participate in and, and even lead ministry activities without a better motivator than this is what we're supposed to do, this is what I'm supposed to do. By the time um, my time with the ministry was over, I felt kind of burnt out. I was occasionally regretful, sometimes even resentful to an extent. It took me a while to come to understand and appreciate the extent to which I had put something which was intended to point me towards Christ in Christ's place. That feeling uh, of that sort of burnout and, and weariness that I felt that's often a good indicator that you've been chasing after something or someone that is of the world and of humanity um, and expecting to be given new life, even if that thing or that person is telling you the whole way that the new life that you're looking for can only come from Jesus. This uh, sort of phenomenon is exactly why Paul is warning the Corinthians against rooting their identity in Paul or Apollos or Peter or their ministries. 
he knows exactly where that road leads uh, and he knows that when someone feels downtrodden uh, or overlooked or pushed aside by society it can be that much easier to latch onto an idol in the hope that it will give you a purpose or identity um, he writes of the corinthians brothers and sisters consider your calling not many were wise from a human perspective not many powerful not many noble of birth instead god has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Paul is reminding us here, and, and really throughout this entire passage uh, of the letter, of the beautiful reversal that is gospel redemption. He's constantly referring to the things that the world perceives as weak and talking about how they have strength, the things the world sees as foolishness, which are actually wisdom, the things that the world sees as wisdom, which are in fact foolishness. Um, and he, he really zeroes in for this section on the things which the world uh, overlooks and passes over and reminds us that those are the things that have been chosen by God and elevated. Um, this is this is sort of the essence of redemption to take something that uh, is seen as worthless or ruined or without yeah without value, um, and then when reframed through the gospel, see the value, see the worth uh, that is inherent that is bestowed by Jesus. There's nothing um, that Paul can teach or any argument from Apollos or any testimony of Peter's that can achieve that reversal. That's something that's accomplished only by the word of the cross that Jesus took on the punishment for sin, died, and rose again, and in doing so opened the door for a new way of living, a new way of knowing God, and a new way of relating to one another, and a new picture of eternity. That's why Paul reminds us who was crucified, concerns himself with whether the effect of the cross is known and understood and appreciated, and urges uh, us and the Corinthians not to let something as foolish and trivial as human teachers threaten to divide the church. He knows that linking your name to another person's as a point of pride to rely on them uh, to be your savior is a worldly wisdom that God makes foolish when we see the hurt and the weariness and confusion um, and the road to death that it leads to. That's why he exhorts the Corinthians, no one may boast in God's presence. It is from him that you are in Jesus Christ who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is really paramount for Paul. We'll see him again and again throughout uh, the book of First Corinthians dismiss any thought that he or Apollos or Peter need to be elevated in any way or that they have anything to offer that Jesus hasn't already given. Um, in chapter 3, he's still going on about this, by the way, in chapter 3. That's how you know it's <laughs> important to him. Uh, he'll warn in chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. There are all kinds of idols that compete for our uh, attention and energy and uh, devotion, things that we look to um, to give us identity um, uh, and, and that we look to, to follow to find these things that Paul is reminding us, we already have these things because we belong to Christ. Um, 
And it's not written anywhere that a good thing can't become an idol. In fact, I think that as we mature uh, in our faith, we have to be even more careful and more vigilant to not make the gifts that God has given us into idols. Uh, because Paul doesn't write about uh, how everything is ours to celebrate uh, that fact, you know, to relish in all the things that we have, but to celebrate that we belong to Christ uh, and his purpose in telling us about the redemption that we undergo thanks to Jesus is to remind us to boast in nothing, not ourselves, not our teachers, uh, not the things we're given, but to boast only in the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you.